what I'm doing is asking the story, what part of the story of creation does the Bible want to tell? Because you can do it different ways. Um, one of the examples that I use, I didn't use it in Lost World of Genesis 1, I hadn't thought of it yet, but um, one of the examples I use is that when we talk about the place we live in, we could talk about its origins as a house, or we could talk about its origins as our home. Both of them are origin stories. Both of them have some significance. Certainly you can't have the home without the house, and you wouldn't want to have just a house that wasn't a home. So they're both origin stories, but you can choose to tell one story or the other. In our scientific world, we always want to tell the house story of the cosmos, how God made the material stuff. That, to us, is what origins and creation are. I suggest that in the ancient world, they always want to tell the home story, because they consider that much more important. That deals with God's purposes and what God's up to. In that sense, in the ancient world, their creation account, a home story, is all about God's agency and God's purposes. Whereas in our modern world, the house story is all about the material stuff. It's about the mechanisms and the scientific processes. They can both be true, but they're different kinds of stories. And the Bible doesn't have to tell the house story just because we like it better. Welcome back to the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I am Seth, you are you, and I am excited that you're here today. Thank you for taking the time to download or listen or stream the show. Before we get started, hit pause for me real quick. And wherever you downloaded this show, just please leave the show rating. If each and every one of you left one, I can't tell you how grateful I would be for the 47 seconds that that took uh, and that will help more people hear uh, the conversations that we're having here on the podcast. Today, I spoke with Dr. John Walton, who is an author, professor, and an Old Testament scholar currently residing at Wheaton College. He specializes in the ancient Near East, and you'll hear us call that in the conversation the A-N-E, uh, specifically in the Old Testament and Genesis and Joshua and the Canaanites and he is a scholar on many things that we were not able to discuss, but he's written a series of books called The Lost World, and each of them deals with a different topic. And uh, so John was not on my radar of people to talk to, and uh, one of the listeners uh, sent it in as a recommendation and said, hey, you should really talk with John. And the more that I researched John, I can say that I am glad that I did, and I look forward to hopefully talking with him again. So, a little bit of what you can expect. We're going to talk quite a bit about Genesis and creation and canon and how the Bible, at least the Hebrew scriptures, are interpreted and how they were put together and why that matters for when we read them now. And you'll also hear me really struggling with, with Genesis. I didn't realize until I listened back to the episode in editing that I am really still not at a healthy place with Genesis, and I'm going to have to do some more wrestling with that. And that's okay. But I hope you enjoy it. I know I enjoyed having the conversation. Here we go. Dr. John Walton. 
John, thank you so much for being able to join the show today. I appreciate your willingness to come on, and I am excited to talk about the Old Testament primarily for two reasons. One, I feel like most churches spend entirely too much time in the New Testament, and as such, to our detriment, many of us don't know anything outside of those placating answers that we were taught in Sunday school growing up. And I may not be right on that, but that's where, at least where I come from, I think. And so I appreciate you uh, making the time to come on today. Glad to be here. Happy to talk about the Old Testament. Let's start with that. What's a bit about you? And a question I always like to ask is, is kind of what was your upbringing in the church, or if there was one, and, and what brought you to doing the work that you do today? Uh, and then and then we'll, we'll dive off from there, because the books that you've written uh, surrounding the, you know, the, the title of The Lost World, I feel like we could talk about for many, many, many hours, which we don't have. And so hopefully this will be the beginning of many conversations. Um, but um, what is kind of that foundational upbringing that has impacted the way that you are now and the way that you teach and in what you believe? Well, I was raised in the church in a very religious family. Um, so Bible and theology were very much a part of our home, part of our church experience. I was raised in it. I was taught it early and taught it thoroughly. And so I have very deep roots in the Bible and in theology. I always loved the Old Testament. It's hard to figure out why that was my preference. I tend to think that um, when I was growing up, uh, lots of what we did with the Bible involved, in some part, trivia. And the Old Testament has a whole lot more trivia, and I learned the trivia well. And so as a result, I felt like I really knew the Old Testament well. Of course, we all know that the Old Testament is far more than the trivia of uh, people and places and dates. Uh, but that was my start. Of course, that's, you have to start somewhere. And so I developed a love for the Old Testament, but I never saw that as a career track. Um, I just couldn't think of anything. You know, being a pastor or a missionary isn't a career track for an Old Testament um, interest. So I majored in business in college and just never thought about the Old Testament as a way to uh, move on into life. But somewhere near the end of my college career, it suddenly occurred to me that, number one, I wasn't really that much interested in business. And number two, there's such a thing as teaching the Old Testament, which was an interesting possibility. And so at that point, that's the direction that I went. Yeah. And you're at Wheaton now, correct? Correct. And so I went to Liberty. So where is Wheaton at on the scale of, I guess, looking at something like, uh, who do we always pick on? Bob Jones. Uh, to someone, I guess, that's on the other spectrum, uh, what, uh, a fuller or, or something akin to that. So where is Wheaton kind of in that, in that spectrum? Well, um, certainly we're, we're not in the category of Bob Jones um, and really not even the same category as Liberty. Liberty, for instance, I suspect is much more traditional, although um, you know, some professors are different than other professors. Um, unlike a place like Fuller, we do have inerrancy in our uh, statement of faith, and so we all sign to belief in inerrancy. Um, so uh, we don't have particularly denominational aspects to our statement of faith, as many schools do. Uh, we are broadly interdenominational, and uh, so it's on the spectrum, probably closer to Fuller than it is to Bob Jones. That's good. Yeah, I, I I hear the name, and you'll see it on the back of you know book jackets or other things, and I just just not extremely uh, familiar with it as a as a university. So, what do you find is what drew you to wanting to teach the Old Testament? What about it besides trivia 
can speaks to you in a way that you're like, no, this is this is what I am called to do. This is what I was designed to do is is to teach this to people. What is that? Well, I came to recognize as you started off the show with the idea that lots of churches don't give much attention to the Old Testament. And I came to believe that that was their loss, uh, that there's so much in the Old Testament that we need to understand better. But it's God's word. It's God's revelation. It's authoritative. How can we neglect it? Uh, it has things that we need to learn. Our Christian faith um, certainly has a lot of focus on Jesus, but it's not only about Jesus. There's a trinity out there. We've got God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, and the, you know our attention needs to, uh, to focus on all of that. When God spoke to the Israelites, even though Jesus had not yet come, uh, he was giving authoritative revelation to them, and therefore it is worth our time and effort to read it. But I felt like lots of people were misunderstanding it because they were unable to read it in its own context and unable to think about the uh, the contribution that it made to theology outside of just what Jesus is. As important as Jesus is. What do you mean in its own context? And I assume by that, when I when I read some of your writing and and what you'll say, you know, on BioLogos or other places, you'll say uh, an abbreviation of A and E, which I assume means ancient Near East. I, I assume yes. that's right. Um, yes. And so, how does how what what do you mean when you say context? Well, the the Bible is written in a language. It's not everybody's language. It was the language of the Israelites. And when you write in a language, you also are writing within a context. Uh, the ancient world context is a lot different than ours. I call it the cultural river. You know, we've got things like democracy and freedom and rights and market economy and um, the uh, expanding universe and naturalism, individualism, consumerism, social network. Those are all part of our cultural river. Ancient Israel had none of those, and they wouldn't understand those. And so God communicates to them in their cultural river, and their cultural river is made up of a lot of things that we don't understand. The significance of idols, uh, the idea that the gods or God are involved in every aspect of what happens in this world. Uh, the importance of kingship and the relationship of the king to the gods, uh, the importance of magic. Um, some parts of our world today have much more understanding of that than we have in our Western culture. But still, those are elements that are unfamiliar to us. And we have to read the Bible in light of them, because that was the reality for an Israelite. If I think about context, and, and, and so when I hear you say that, what I can hear is, you know, 500 years from now, someone can go back and look at public posts on Facebook or Twitter or blog posts, things that have been printed out or stored on a hard drive somewhere. And we don't have that for the Old Testament. That's right. How can we then know that what we're reading is contextually accurate? Like what, where do we even start foundationally? Like someone like myself that does not have a huge library of knowledge or the infrastructure to even know what what interstate I need to get on to get there. How do I begin that? Well, of course, the only reason why we have all of this access to the ancient world is because of the texts that have been found in archaeological excavation. 
That means that this information is, for the most part, less than 100 years old. Uh, but it's those texts which give us a window uh, to the ancient world so that we can understand, beyond the Bible, how people tended to think in the ancient world. Now, still, um, well, Christians today in the church might feel like, well, I'm not going to go read texts from Assyria or Babylon or Egypt. I have no access to that. Um, how would I get to that? Well, fortunately, those of us who do uh, study those areas have begin to have begun to publish tools that people in the church can use. So, for example, most recently, I was the general editor for the Old Testament for the Cultural Background Study Bible. And all the study notes are background notes. They talk about history or archaeology or geography or ancient manners and customs, ancient literature, and just basically the way people thought in the ancient world. And so in, in that way, we're able to make that information accessible, just like theologians make theology accessible, even though the people who read it might not be theologians. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. And and I wonder if that's maybe why churches lean more towards the New Testament, because there's there seems to be more works for, you know, Rome and and all of the things that are surrounding that time period. Maybe there's not. Maybe I'm I'm ignorant of that. But I wonder if that's not why they do that, just because it's easier to get source material to cross-reference and, and further examples as opposed to just quoting the Bible to prove the Bible. Not only is it easier to get those source materials, but also the Greco-Roman culture is closer to our own Western culture than the ancient Near East is. There are still, of course, very important differences, but it's closer. So it feels a little more familiar. Yeah. So I am curious. So in, in preparing for this, and one of the questions that I'm that I would love your perspective on is how the Old Testament is is come together. And so there, from what I can tell, there's like three, I believe there's three hypotheses or or theories for how the Torah com- came together. And so you got the documentary, uh, the supplementary, and another one that I can't remember. Can you, which one do you hold and why? Uh, it's probably some very complicated combination of many of those things. The fact is we don't know much about how it's come together. We we put together models that either have supplementation or um, kind of a uh, gathering together of sources or all of these things. And probably some things in the history of the compilation of the text touch on lots of those different ways of thinking. But again, we only have models. Um, it's very difficult to del- tell from the documents we have and from the history that we know how those models came into play in the actual compilation of Scripture. So uh, all we can do with the models is to say, here are some things that are possibilities, and that may lead us to be more cautious about some of the traditional ways we might think, like the writers of Scripture went into a quasi-trance while the Holy Spirit dictated to them. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a model, too, but it's one that uh, is less and less um, accepted. Uh, but then, so how, how did it happen? And again, lots of we don't know. We know that the chronicler used sources because he tells us he did. Uh, we know that the culture was typically a hearing-dominant culture, not a text-dominant culture. So in a hearing-dominant culture, what you hear 
has more authority than what you read. And of course, lots of people could not read or could not read well. And therefore, documents were not made widely available for them to read because that wasn't how society worked. I've written about these things in a book that I did with Brent Sandy called The Lost World of Scripture, which explores some of the the models and the possibilities. Yeah. Well, that's not one that I've read. Um, I believe that I am going to it's going to get ordered today. Um, I have fallen in <laughs> love with your Lost World books very much so because you bring up a lot of things that I question all the time um, in, in a way that I can understand as someone that does not have a degree in theology. In, in, when we talk about Genesis or when you write about Genesis, I want to make a distinction because it's something I had not really given much thought about until I read um, what you wrote about it. So you kind of propose that there is no material creation and that there's some form of a cosmic, I'm going to say this wrong. Can you speak a bit when you mean, uh, for Genesis 1 and 2, the, I, I don't want to say it wrong and you have to correct me. Yeah. The material creation versus well, the cosmic temple. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, the, what I propose is that in the ancient world, when they thought about God or the gods creating, they thought thought of something very different than what we think. We're in a scientific world, and therefore when we think about creation or origins, we tend to think automatically in scientific terms. Uh, I propose that in the ancient world, and I try to demonstrate both in the Bible and outside the Bible, that in the ancient world, they thought of creation primarily in terms of ordering. Certainly, they believed that the gods made the physical cosmos, but that's just not a very big issue to them. The fact that he orders it, sustains it, maintains it, makes it work, uh, set it up to work the way he wanted it to, those are all much more important things. And that comes out in terms like naming and separating, which both the Bible and other ancient Near Eastern texts have. Those are all matters of ordering. It doesn't mean that God didn't create the material world. Basically, what I'm doing is asking the story, what part of the story of creation does the Bible want to tell? Because you can do it different ways. Um, One of the examples that I use, I didn't use it in Lost World of Genesis 1, I hadn't thought of it yet, but um, one of the examples I use is that when we talk about the place we live in, we could talk about its origins as a house, or we could talk about its origins as our home. Both of them are origin stories. Both of them have some significance. Certainly you can't have the home without the house, and you wouldn't want to have just a house that wasn't a home. So they're both origin stories, but you can choose to tell one story or the other. In our scientific world, we always want to tell the house story of the cosmos how God made the material stuff. That, to us, is what origins and creation are. I suggest that in the ancient world, they always want to tell the home story, because they consider that much more important. That deals with God's purposes and what God's up to. In that sense, in the ancient world, their creation account, a home story, is all about God's agency and God's purposes. Whereas in our modern world, the house story is all about the material stuff. It's about the mechanisms and the scientific processes. They can both be true, but they're different kinds of stories. And the Bible doesn't have to tell the house story just because we like it better. 
in a different interview, and I can't remember which one. I, I think it was one with uh, Alexander Shai. He had he had said when I asked him a similar. He's he's trained in anthropology and he was talking about the Gospels, but he had said that that um, when when they tried to to write about truths or speak truths in you know in the ancient Judaism and ancient Israel culture, they weren't speaking in a truth or a history the way that you and I would read an accounting of one of the Korean wars or right. the, the election, that they were trying to speak a truth to get you to realize the intent and the emotion behind it, not a quote-unquote factual a- accounting. And I, I'm probably saying that wrong. Is that is that kind of where you're getting at with that, that, that it's not about... It's the same kind of thing. We have to define our terms carefully. Um, they were much more we're interested, for instance, in outcomes than in the events themselves. And they constructed their interpretation of events to highlight the outcomes. That doesn't mean that they're false or made up or fictional. It's just a way of trying to get at the, the truth of what's taking place. When I read Genesis, am I reading it as six literal 24-hour days, which and in, in, there's a portion of my mind that knows that the Greco-Roman Gregorian calendar didn't exist when the Genesis was written, and so who knows what a day was. But am I supposed to lead it, read it in a literal six days, seven-day rest? Is Adam an actual person, or is it all myth? Like, How do I then ride that line of, of knowing what to read with what I need to feel and what to read and how to read with what I need to act upon? You can't read a text any more literally than to read it precisely how the author intended it to be read, what he expected his audience to understand. So I'm always on the quest to be a faithful interpreter by being accountable to what the author intended. If the author intended something as a metaphor, we'd better read it as a metaphor. If he intended it as a parable, we'd better read it as a parable. That's what literal reading is. It's our accountability to the author's intention. So when I read Genesis 1... I want to get a sense of what the author intended. That involves the words that he chose, the literary structures that he set up, and the cultural context in which he's in. Now, to the specific questions you ask, do I believe that the author is intending us to think of six literal days, seven literal days? Yes, I do. And I think that the evidence is pretty clear that that's what the author intends for us. What's less clear is what is he suggesting took place in those seven 24-hour days? Is he thinking that the house was built in the 24-hour, six 24-hour days, or that the home was being made? That's a big difference. Okay, so uh, when we think about our houses being built, it's foundation, it's framing, it's roof, it's the you know, interior walls, it's the uh, furnace, the air conditioning, the the plumbing, the electricity, that's the house being built. But then the home being made is when you come in with your boxes and unpack and set up the furniture. You could understand that you might be able to make your home in seven days, but they're not going to build your house in seven days. So they're both origin stories, which story is the text telling? I think that they are intending us to read them as literal days, 24-hour days, but the literal reading would be that this is a home story, and therefore that's a different set of things that happens 
in those days. If it's a home story and not a house story, then those seven days say nothing whatsoever about the age of the earth, because age of the earth is a house story question. So then, well, I guess here's where... So I recently uh, read Ask the Beast, Darwin, and the, and the God of Love from from Elizabeth Johnson, and, and she was saying that, that creation and evolution can coexist and that the two don't necessarily, believing in one doesn't break the other for, any, for many reasons. And so, so the house story then of evolution, does it not, or the theory of evolution, I'd, I'd hate to say that that's a fact. Don't hear me say that. I don't think anybody can prove that it is or isn't. Um, where, does, where does science then, where does that tension begin to nuance in the center? How can someone listening to this that is, you know, an atheist or someone that's listening to this that that doesn't believe in six literal days because they just it just logically can't work in their brain. Can evolution or, or do you think evolution can be true or the or the the premise of it um and still hold those six days being that I guess when you say the literal is 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 the house are you saying that 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 it's the temple that it's the 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 people that are being created in those six literal days? Or am I, am okay, I getting that was it totally off? Too many questions at once. Okay. Too Sorry. many questions at once. Okay. Rambling. So <laughs> when we think about the the literal reading of the text, if that's accountable to the author, and if the author did not intend a house story, then the house story is not the literal reading. The house story is a scientific reading from today. It's not a literal reading if the author intended otherwise. If I am right that the author intended the home story, then that really says nothing much about the house story. And since evolution is one proposal for a house story, if the Bible's not talking about the house story, then the two can't really come into conflict. Okay. Okay? If the home story is true, then I propose that the home story is that God is ordering this world to be sacred space. By sacred space, I mean it's the place where he tends to dwell among his people. He intends to be with us. He intends to be in relationship with us. He intends to dwell among us. That is his purpose, and that is why he sets up this home. It's a home that functions for us, because he doesn't have any needs but it's a home which he intends to share with us. That's all home story. And I believe that's a literal reading of the text, because that's what I believe the author intends. say then that that the creation story in in Genesis was written during uh, Babylonian exile or during a different time altogether? I really have no idea since the text doesn't tell us. 
uh, we have no information on that. Um, if, um, I mean, to me, it is likely something that maybe didn't find its final form until late in Israelite history, but that's the writing part. Writing comes at the end, not at the beginning, because they're a hearing dominant culture. So the, these traditions, these stories, these accounts, these narratives could have been circulating and accumulating all through the, the period of the Old Testament. Maybe they weren't put together in the writing form that we know of it till later on in the process, but that doesn't mean that they were just kind of invented then or made up then. They represent the accumulated traditions of the Israelites whenever they were written. Maybe they were written early. Maybe not. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So am I wrong then in saying that, that Genesis 1, and, and, I want, and the reason I want to clarify is because of the next question, um, is is a is a creation story of the of a of a of the temple cosmically of the purpose for Israel correct or am I am I getting it wrong? The purpose is that it's God dwelling among His people. Israel's not the only one that thinks God's dwell among the people, so that's not limited to a purely Israelite type of view. Although again, the Israelites framed that a little bit differently than others. But this is a book written by Israelites to Israelites. If I think about its its purpose is to tell me about God coming to dwell among me, how then? And and, and I would have to infer that the people writing the text would be some form of a of a priestly, someone with the knowledge base to do so. I I can't see you know someone like myself writing a book of the Bible. I I don't I, I can't do that. Um, and so if when I think about a flood narrative and just a destruction of everything that was created chapters prior. How can the question that arises to me, and and maybe it's it's a bad question, is when I read of this total destruction of a temple that I created, but I here's the reason I'm creating it. I can't seem to reconcile the two. So what is the purpose then for you know Genesis seven when we think about you know uh, the the purpose of Genesis one and two in correlation there? When Genesis one conveys its message. It is that God has brought order to the cosmos. That is creation. He has brought order to the cosmos, and that order has to do with him dwelling there. That is, he's preparing it to be a place for his dwelling, because he is the center and source of order. And so when he takes up his dwelling place there, resting uh, in this world, uh, his rest is his rule. And so he is maintaining order. Yet people choose their own way of ordering the world around themselves. That's Genesis 3. And it doesn't go well. That's Genesis 4 through 7. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so at that point, already people have lost access to God's presence, though what he's doing with regard to the cosmos in terms of his dwelling place, we don't know. It's not going to be reestablished until the tabernacle in Exodus 40. But at that point, people are kind of pursuing order their own way. And that doesn't work so well, and so we end up with the flood. The flood returns creation, the, the terrestrial cosmos, to a non-ordered state, just like Genesis 1-2, all water. And then God recreates. This is a recapitulation of ordering. If we understand creation as ordering, this is a recapitulation of creation. And so God 
reestablishes order in the cosmos. The dry land emerges. Uh, people come forth from the ark in this case. Animals come forth. The blessing is reiterated. All of this. Now, we've, we talk about this in Lost World of the Flood. All this is lined out there. Tremper Longman and I, just that just came out last month. So th- in that way, it, this is a recapitulation of creation. But there is still some uh, disruptions of order, as we read in the Tower of Babel narrative, and that leads to God pursuing order through the covenant, which launches us then into Genesis 12. You said something earlier of gods, and, and I want to make sure it wasn't a slip of the tongue. So, and and I've read a bit about this and in, in other places, and I'm at a nanescent level of knowledge about it. And so, I assume when you say that there's gods and in, in some form of court of heavenly host, and who creates what, and who gets to be worshipped, is it, was there a time that that Israelites worshipped more than one god, but just elevated quote unquote Yahweh to a, a different level, or is it always just been one? Well, the Bible tells us that they worshipped other gods in Egypt. The Bible tells us that Abraham's family, he came from a polytheistic family. During the Judges period, that was one of the recurring problems over and over. Uh, They worshipped other gods. So they weren't supposed to, at least in the Judges period, once you get the covenant. It's the covenant which lays out the idea that you are in relationship with me. I am suzerain. You are vassal. You do not have loyalty to anyone else. And so it's the covenant that frames that more exclusive relationship. And of course, that happens with Abraham. Um, But again, we know that the Israelites continued to worship other gods, um, much, much to their loss. So, uh, but I mentioned other gods because I was also talking about the literature of people like the Babylonians and the Egyptians, and they saw their gods doing the same thing that Israel saw her God doing. So that's why I kind of expanded it to both. When I think about a a creation story with the intended of, of putting things into order, uh, that in my mind, presupposes as those things were already there. So I just showed up at this building site of a house, and the, the how did this stuff get there? Or, or is that a question worth asking? Well, there's no question that the biblical authors, Old and New Testament, believe that uh, even the material stuff, the house, was something that God did. But still, there's which question are you asking, which question are you answering? Mm-hmm. You know, when I have students over at my place for dinner, they might ask us about our place, and they don't want me to describe the electricity and the plumbing. <laughs> they want me to talk about how we made it our home. And so I don't talk about the electricity or the plumbing. There is electricity and plumbing, but I don't talk about it, because yeah. that's just not the question on the table. Yeah. And so there's no question in the ancient world that uh, God or the gods, again, whether it's Israel or the others, um, uh, were were the ones who, if I can say it this way, manufactured the material cosmos. But they're not interested in that. It's just like, you know, we rarely, when we pull out our laptops or our iPads, we rarely ask questions about the, you know, who who wired the motherboard or, um, you know, what kind of materials, chemistry, polymers are in the casing. We don't care. We know it's there, and if somebody asks you, you say, well, yeah, I know that. But that's not the 
thing. We're interested in apps and operating systems and things of that sort. Right. How do I use it? So again, it's a matter of what questions you're asking. Right. And I'm, and I apologize to keep going back to that, but I think that is one of my biggest struggles personally. And it's something that I see most often spoken back to me or preached on. or the, And that's the questions that I most often get from younger kids, including my own. And so um, there's a part of my brain that I can't shut off with that. But I do want to try to switch gears. Um, so how do I, how should we deal with 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 God as as a supreme divine kind of warrior and i think of that in terms of just the violence that's involved in passover and in texts like joshua 5 how do i how do i sit with that cuz i struggle to reconcile that with 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 jesus as as well you should i mean people struggle with that all the time um again another of the lost world books is Lost World of the Israelite Conquest, and uh, my son and I wrote that together and tackled that topic, uh, at least on the conquest issue. Now, lots of the other places in Scripture where God is seen as bringing about death, um, that's considered a, um, a justifiable act of judgment that the people brought on themselves. Um, and so you find that now you look at the Passover and you say, wait a minute, those are just kids. What, what did they bring on themselves? And again, then you have to recognize this is operating within an ancient world context where they thought differently about identity. They thought differently about, um, you know, corporate identity and the solidarity of a, a family and that they all kind of operate together. So again, you've got a different worldview there. But when you look at things like you know, Sodom and Gomorrah or uh, the, um, the, uh, the Amalekites uh, with Saul, um, those are places where it's judgment. Even the destruction of Jerusalem, um, where many of the Israelites were killed by the Babylonian invaders, yet this is God's judgment and punishment on them. You know, we can't remove from God's profile that he's carries out justice, and that that sometimes means punishment. Now, my son and I tried to build the case that that is not the same with the Israelite conquest. Uh, We suggest that the reasons that people think the Canaanites were being punished cannot be substantiated in the text, and that there's a different sort of thing going on there. Um, So uh, not every situation falls into that category. But still, um, you know, Jesus drives out the money changers. Jesus is, uses very strong words about uh, the destruction of hell and the destruction of body and soul. I mean, Jesus has some pretty strong words of judgment and how seriously we should take judgment. Thinking about you know, all of the Bible, when people speak about the issues that are plaguing this century, you know, justice and reconciliation and slavery and apathy— and uh, sex trafficking, everyone tends to quote the New Testament at excess, which is fine. It's fine. How can those? How can we infer texts from the Old Testament though into the issues that are dealing with us for this century, this one now, not ancient Israel? Well, it's really difficult because the Old Testament is framed and addressed toward ancient Israel. I have a book coming out early next year called "Lost World of the Torah," and we talk about this very issue because people 
in the church are very willing to grab a verse from the from the Torah, from Exodus or Leviticus, uh, if it says what they want to say, but they tend to neglect all the other verses in those books, uh, and they end up being very selective. And we can't do that. We have to use a consistent method. And so the question of, do any of those things from the Old Testament carry any kind of weight for us? And if so, what and how do you get at it? And that's what that book is trying to to work on, uh, to try to have a consistent hermeneutic. Uh, The fact is, uh, all of the Torah is within the framework of the Israelite covenant. The Israelite covenant was made with them, not with everybody. And while we might um, suspect that it contains some morally important ideas, um, how do you figure out what's morally important and what's not? If you only use the criteria of what I already believe, well, that, then it's not the Bible that's establishing that. Yeah. And so the idea that the Bible, that the Torah is situated in an ancient context, in a covenant relationship, and in the context of Israel living in sacred space, God dwelling in their midst, all of those make it very different from what we have today. So it requires a much more complicated process. And again, that's why we tried to write a book to clarify it. I want to end uh, with this this final question, which which may be broken into two parts, because that seems to be my thing today. Um, being that you get students coming to you and they've got a, a certain level of knowledge base, and I have to think there are some commonalities as as they approach you or they wouldn't be um, you know, going to study courses in Old Testament. So what would be something that you would say, all right, I'm going to get all of the pastors that have taught these kids growing up. You have got to let this go. This is not helpful for teaching people about theology or about the God that we worship. What would be that thing that you should say, that you would say, no, this, stop, stop preaching this, stop teaching this. This is horribly biblical, horribly unbiblical. Is, is there anything that would fall into that category that would then make it easier to not have to break down a bunch of foundations to then rebuild? There are kind of loads of things in that category. Um, you know, in general, we've already talked about the idea that we don't read our modern cultural context back into the text. That is, we don't treat the text, for instance, as a science text that's teaching science. Mm-hmm. But I think the one that I would emphasize most is that um, and this happens from little kids all the way up into our our church contexts. Uh, when people read Old Testament narrative, they tend to treat it as if it's, number one, a compilation of role models that we are supposed to follow. Be a leader like Nehemiah, you know, be bold like Daniel, uh, or that it's um, behavioral objectives that we should follow. Um, Abraham let Lot choose first. So are you letting other people choose first? And, <laughs> and, and we use them those ways, and that's all we ever do with them. And I would want to help uh, Sunday school teachers and parents and pastors and youth pastors understand that's not what we're supposed to be doing with Old Testament narrative. Now, I wrote about that in a book called The Bible Story Handbook where we talked about exactly what we do with Bible stories, and is there a way to do it wrong? Yes, there is. Uh, what is the, the way to do it so we actually get God's message instead of kind of making things up that we shouldn't be doing? Yeah. So I think that's 
that's what shows up day after day after day, week after week, year after year in curriculum and and in sermons uh, that use the Old Testament. Well, and I ask that for for a very specific reason. So I, I do have young kids that ask me questions constantly, and I do teach Sunday school to middle schoolers. And so I, mm-hmm. I my, one of my biggest fears is they'll ask me a question that I don't know how to answer. And I'm, I'm realizing that not answering and just telling them I don't know is a fine answer, but I can't, yeah. I can't leave it at that. Uh, and, and I also don't want to, I don't know, I'm not a pastor. Like I'm not trained for that. Yeah. So I don't want to, I don't want to break something that doesn't need to be broken. And I don't want to build up something that yeah. should have never been there. So for those listening, I have bounced around, and if you haven't noticed, many of um, of John's books. So, John, where would you direct people to engage in uh, a knowledge of ancient Near um, ancient Near East culture, so that they can better read, you know, the scriptures? And then, how would they engage with you? Well, engaging with with me, I'm I've they can just Google my name on YouTube. And you'll find all kinds of things that I've talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, my books are all on Amazon. You know, there are about 30 of them by now. And they can go into Amazon and find lots of those. Uh, if they want to engage in the ancient Near East, uh, I already mentioned the Cultural Background Study Bible, yeah. which is available in NIV translation and the NKJV version and is in preparation for the NRSV version, so a variety of translations. So that's where they could get to some of that. If you didn't want to get a study Bible, uh, the IVP Bible Backgrounds Commentary, um, the Old Testament one I did with a couple friends, and the New Testament Craig Keener did. So they could get into it on that as well. If I've learned anything during this show, and in the lead-up to the show, it's that learning about the culture and who was Paul was writing to and, and who Nehemiah was listening to. Like everybody matters, and, and we can't read it in a vacuum. And, and I can't stress enough that as, as, as I've gone through this, I humbly have learned to admit how very little I know about anything, um, which is frightening, to say the least, but uh, truthful. We're all learning. We're all on the learning curve, and we just try to get as much as much as we can yeah well john thank you so much for today i enjoyed it even though i know my questions were scatterbrained <laughs> so. you're quite welcome seth glad to do it So there we have it. History, context, scripture, empire, idolatry, everything that we still yell and argue about today, everything that matters about the Bible is present in the Old Testament and is worth engaging in in a way that is hard and healthy. I know for me, I'm going to have to do some more wrestling with some of these texts. I'm not at a place that I can adequately answer even the questions that I'm asking or the next question that comes after it. And it's fine to be in a place for that. That I think is healthy to be in a place that you're still searching for truth. And I know that the truth is there. And I know that with consistent prayer and study and willingness to press into hard spaces, I'll arrive at a place that I am comfortable with and that I believe in. 
and that is beautiful and that is holy. And I hope the same for you. If you haven't yet, as you heard in previous episodes, I've got big plans for the show and need your support on Patreon for that to happen. You will find links to that at canisaythisatchurch.com, top right of the website. Today's music was provided by the Silver Pages. Again, thank you for that. Please support their music. You can find everything for that at silverpages.com. I look forward to talking to you. I look forward to your feedback on the show. And I will speak with you next week.